When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome to today's episode, which will likely deal with some dark topics and sometimes sweary words. So listener discretion is always advised. For ad-free and bonus episodes, click in the link in the show notes for exclusive content. You can support the show at buymeacoffee.com or by giving me a rate, writing a review, or subscribing to future episodes. And with all my marketing blah 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 out of the way, on with the show. A Million Other Choices is a true crime podcast, and as such, we do discuss some dark topics that might be triggering for some. As you are a true crime listener, I support you in your curiosity. However, having lost a family member to homicide, my message is always to remember not just the victims, but the families and friends left behind, and also the officers, detectives, and prosecutors that work tirelessly for justice. There are links to make monetary donations in the show notes, but more importantly, if you enjoy the podcast, please tell your friends and press that fifth star on your listening platform to help me grow the show. I hope you enjoy the following episode. Hello again, and welcome to A Million Other Choices. I am your host, Kim. This story is actually a big one, and and one that I wasn't originally going to cover, even though it's um, one of my, you know, they say favorites, uh, whatever, you know what I mean. Whenever I say my favorite or exciting or great or whatever good when it comes to cases you know what I mean so I wasn't going to cover it because there's actually a documentary on Netflix about it um called life with murder and it's a fairly big one so you might have actually seen it if you haven't I would recommend that you watch it it's really a very intriguing story and actually won an international Emmy it's directed by John Kastner if you are interested I'd I don't know if it's on Netflix anymore, but it's probably on Crave or Prime or one of those ones, or you could maybe find it on YouTube. But I was actually talking to one of my listeners from the U.S. um, named Beth, and we were kind of chatting about some cases, and she mentioned this one. And it's actually one of my favorite documentaries, so I I was excited that there was interest in me covering it, uh, even though there is this documentary, but then I decided... Rather than just sort of regurgitate all the information that's in the documentary, I would do my own, you know, old-fashioned research and use the 
the news articles and the court docs and, and stuff like that to sort of find the information. And of course, it's the same story, um, but I'm actually glad that I did my own digging because I found out some interesting things um, from the court transcripts that were actually not included in the documentary. So hopefully you'll learn a little something. If, you if you've watched it and you're familiar with it, maybe you'll learn something new today. I think this case is definitely a real heartbreaker, especially if you're a parent and a parent of more than one child. This is the murder of Jennifer Jenkins. We start in a town called Chatham-Kent, which is located in uh, the southwest of Ontario. Back in the 19th century, it was actually the end of the Underground Railroad and the site of Uncle Tom's cabin. Yet today, the population is 92% Caucasian. Some of the list of famous residents is actually pretty long and includes country music star Michelle Wright, um, quite a long list of former NHL players, and was once home to Sam Hanopoulos, who was creator of the Hawaiian pizza. The point is, it's a small town, and although it is close to Detroit, it does not share the same crime rate. Childhood sweethearts Brian and Leslie Jenkins had been married for years. In April 2016, when Brian passed away at the age of 67, they had been married for 42 years. Now, Brian worked selling industrial chemicals, and Leslie was originally a school teacher before making a switch to working in mental health services. And together they had two children, Mason and Jennifer. There really isn't too much about the Jenkins that couldn't be described as completely and totally what society today considers normal. Jennifer was a bright and cheery child who grew up to have a lot of friends. Every picture that I've seen of her, she's smiling. Mason and Jennifer grew up close to each other and other than normal sibling you know, who got the bigger piece of pie kind of stuff, their relationship was as close to normal and a close sibling relationship and they were mutually very respectful of each other. Mason did have a bit of a puzzling past. Uh, as a young teenager, he he seemed to enjoy sort of a, or he had a taste for adventure and kind of an adrenaline junkie. And he would sometimes steal someone's car. And of course, this is a small town, so car doors weren't always locked. He would take the car for a joyride and then return it, hopefully undetected. He'd also been involved in some other thefts. And one of these incidents actually had landed him in jail for a short period. His family, although disappointed, obviously, in his behavior, remained very supportive of him and, and hopeful that he was soon going to outgrow his destructive and kind of immature lifestyle. Nothing in Mason's past, according to the documentary, and his parents would have indicated that he was even capable of violence. His troubles with the law, though, did start pretty early when he was only 12, um, and then, as described by his mom, Leslie, it was more of a, a taste for adventure than it was really any criminal intent. So he had been in jail for, they don't really, in the documentary, they don't say what he had been in jail for, but he had finished his sentence just before Christmas of 1997 and had come back to the family home. Um, at that time, he was 20, Jennifer was 18, and she was just finishing up her final year of high school. So the holidays were spent together, you know, with extended family, 
which was the usual practice for their family, and no one could have suspected how very wrong things were about to go. On the afternoon of January 6, 1998, Leslie picked Brian up from the mechanic shop where he had dropped off his car, um, and they headed home together, and, you know, in the car they talked about normal stuff couples talk about at that time of the day so probably what was going to be for dinner so the normal routine was that Leslie would arrive home just around 4 30 and then Brian would come home sometime shortly after five but that day was a little bit different so Leslie phoned the house around 4 p.m when she was getting ready to leave the mechanic shop and Mason answered the phone and she just um said that her and um, you know me and dad are on our way home and we'll be home probably around 4 30 and uh, Mason just said okay and like they hung up so very normal phone call nothing out of the ordinary going on Leslie and Brian arrived home then around five uh, and the house was dark they did the normal you know walking in the door and saying we're home um, there was no answer Leslie then noticed Jennifer's backpack on the floor near the stairs that led down to the basement. And what really disturbed her was that there was this trail of blood on the carpet that went from the living room where there was like a lazy boy chair and then down like through the living room and then down the basement steps. So she immediately got on the phone to 911. Brian ran down the basement stairs, found Jennifer on the floor. She was face up, bleeding from what Brian thought was kind of everywhere. But he could tell that she had been shot multiple times. So Leslie made the, this frantic phone call to 911. Um, I debated back and forth whether or not I was going to play the 911 call because I know that a lot of you do not like 911 calls. Um, but in the end, I decided that I am going to play it, but just so you know, it is exactly, you're going to want to, if you don't want to listen to it, because it, I mean, it is a little bit heartbreaking. You're going to want to fast forward 50 seconds from now. 1715 ambulance emergency. Yeah, it's 28, Joshua. There's blood in basement. Um, we need help. Two teenagers. Okay. Did, are they conscious talking? Brian, are they conscious? No. No. Pick up the phone. Okay. Yeah. Uh, where is she right now? She's on the basement floor. Okay. Blood is coming out of her, like it's stopped, but it's soaked up. It is. Okay. You're absolutely sure she's not breathing? She's not breathing a thing. Well, her head's, it's covered in blood sort it of is. thing, and there's no life here at all. There isn't. All right. Well, is she on her back? She's on her back now, yes. God, Jennifer. Oh, honey. Sadly, Jennifer was found beyond any medical help. So then the attention kind of turns to, well, where's Mason? Like, has he suffered gunshot wounds as well? Is he bleeding out somewhere? Like, we you don't, know, so they're kind of desperate to, to find him. Now, the story of Mason, according to the documentary of how they came across him, was a bit confusing. 
I definitely know that he was found on horseback, but I mean, he made it sound like he was just kind of like out horseback riding. And some police will describe it as fleeing the scene on horseback. It's, it's all kind of very strange. Um, it does get cleared up a little bit later on uh, in some of the court documents that I was actually able to find. But at the time that Leslie and Brian were frantically calling 911, Mason was riding a horse and he's found and uh, brought in for questioning. Jennifer was found to have five gunshot wounds in total, three in the right side of her head and then two in the chest. Now, right away, the police find Mason to be a suspect because the story that he tells them just doesn't make any sense. He says that just after Jennifer arrived home from school, the normal routine was that she would make herself some popcorn and then sit in the living room and watch her soap operas. So she was doing that when four men pulled up in the driveway in a white van and they all got out. Two of them had weapons that they kidnapped Mason, who showed no injuries, uh, and then one... Well, the story changes. It's either one or two of the men went inside the house and they must have killed Jennifer. So, of course, police don't buy this story. And he isn't exactly a master criminal mastermind here. He kind of screws up. Should have been me. He's never done anything to anybody in her whole life. She was 18 and she was going places. And one of the people went back into the house. I don't know what happened. I never saw what happened because they put me into a van. I didn't murder anybody. I got no reason to lie to you. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Sure you do. I don't have any reason. You're for first degree murder. You have reason to lie. I You have motive to lie. I can see that, yes. Did you hate her that much? I never, no, I didn't hate my sister. Why would I hate my sister? She bent over backwards for me. Yes, she did. She cares more than, you know, ever than anybody. <laughs> she had more faith in me than sometimes my parents did. Yep. You know, I ain't got no reason to hate her. I got no reason to blow her fucking head off. No, I have no reason, you know, whatsoever to do anything like that. If you're ever being questioned for murder, which please don't ever be questioned for murder, and certainly if you are ever questioned for murder, please don't have done it. But if you are, it's probably not best to say things like, why would I shoot her in the head when nobody's told you? that she's been shot or shot in the head. Ready for a career in behavioral health? Earn your online degree at Herzing University. Choose from health and human services, psychology, or social work programs. Gain the skills to work, coordinate, and manage nonprofits. Secure a bachelor's in psychology to study mental health or advance your social work career through our online master's of social work. Let us help you become a social change agent. Your future starts now at Herzing University. Text HEALTH to 85109. That's HEALTH to 85109. Or visit herzing.edu. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The other issue the police had were with a couple of wills left on the kitchen table. One was Leslie's and the other's Brian's. So the one that was Brian's read, I, Brian D. Jenkins, hereby declare any property or possessions belonging to myself wholly or jointly be left to my spouse, Leslie M. Jenkins, and appoint her the executor of my will. Any outstanding debts shall be dealt with by her and any money after matters are settled. I would like it evenly divided between her and our children. If she should pass on at the same time, I leave all property and possession to my son Mason J. Jenkins and appoint him executor. I trust that he will divide any money or property properly property evenly between himself and his sister Jennifer A. Jenkins to ensure both of them a good future. Only Brian and Leslie admit that not only did they not write those wills, that they wouldn't have written them like that. What the police felt happened is that Mason was planning on killing his parents as well. And then that was the reason that he had actually dragged Jennifer's body down the basement stairs so that when, as the normal routine was, mom would come home first, when his mom would come home, um, she wouldn't see her. So she would actually enter the house because obviously if you walk in and you immediately see a body, you might not continue carrying on into the house but that when he found out that they were coming home together uh, that kind of had to change his plans a little bit and he only had a single shot rifle so this was one that had to be reloaded in between rounds and that was actually interesting because I mean she was shot five times now according to the NRI NRA website, this type of rifle is one that's manually loaded and operated without a magazine. So it's capable of being loaded and firing only one single shot at a time. But what's heartbreaking in the documentary is that Leslie and Brian kind of side with Mason. Now you put yourself in that position. Your, your one child is dead and your other child is accused of doing it. He says he didn't do it. You've never seen any signs of violence in him that would lead you to believe that he could do it. I mean, could you pick a side? Would you feel like you had to pick a side? It's really heartbreaking. And that's the part of the documentary that I think is worth watching is to just sort of how the parents have kind of, I don't know, just been led to support Mason through all of this despite really some overwhelming evidence against him. So Mason was charged with first degree murder and was sentenced to life with no chance of parole for the 25 years and they never really as a family talked about it, talked about what had happened. Now at first it was because 
both Brian and Leslie were potential witnesses for the trial. And if you are a witness, you are not allowed to attend any preliminary hearings. Um, you can't attend court at all until your testimony part is over. So that would be why at first they hadn't talked about it. But then later, I think it was that they just weren't really ready to talk about it. Uh, Mason, of course, didn't offer much information. And I, I, I think they maybe, you know, that part of denial, it's better if you, what I don't know can't hurt me, I think. So what happened was John Kastner had decided to do a documentary about um, being the parents of someone who's serving a life sentence. And so this was in 2010. And by that time, all of Mason's appeals had been exhausted. So he was actually in his life sentence. Um, But during the filming, he revealed to his... Uh, it was like a prison liaison, it's a correctional officer, kind of like a parole officer, but while you're in the prison system. He said, I hate to admit it, but I think about ki- I did think about killing my parents. It seemed like it was the only alternative for money at the time. If I do this, I'll get money and then if I get and then I'll get the respect and then you know things will sort themselves out. I planned it. That's why the gun was there. I spent all day with my dad and I couldn't do it. Now, still to this very day, he still claims that killing his sister was just a freak accident and that he did not go ahead with the plan to murder his parents and and that he had never planned to kill his sister, but that the rifle had accidentally, accidentally gone off when he was taking the rifle out to the garage and that he shot her then the other four times (laughs) because... One, he said he wanted her to stop moaning like an animal and to make it look like she had been shot by more than one person. I don't know, try and make it seem like the kidnapping story was more believable. So, of course, he, you know, he admits that he is responsible for Jennifer's death, but that it's an accident. And then he admits that the kid, that kidnapping never happened, uh, but that he abandoned his plan to kill his parents because he had spent the day with his dad and he just he just couldn't do it. And then, of course, then he was taking the, the gun out to the garage when it suddenly went off and had shot Jennifer in the head. But I still think there's a few holes in that story as well. Since the filming of Life With Murder, Mason has been out on a few escorted leaves. In 2013, he was able to attend his grandmother's funeral and then also the funeral of his father, Brian, who sadly passed away in April of 2016. In 2019, he was granted permission to attend the internment of his father's ashes and to participate in a volunteer like community service program that was up to 12 hours a day at a time. And the parole board at that point at that point stated the board is mindful of the horrific murder of your sister you have caused significant harm to your family and have negatively changed the lives of your parents forever this board is also cognizant of the fact that you still have work to do to address your risk factors it's the board's opinion that you will not by reoffending, present an undue risk to society during your absences I don't understand that quote. It's the board's opinion that you will not, by reoffending, present an undue risk to society. I don't. Why would they say that? Um, there was this article 
about the documentary on a site called Eyes for Lies and some of the comments I found really interesting. So one user commented, I continue to be disgusted by Mason Jenkins. His parents must be a little on the mental side to remain that devoted. If my son murdered my daughter, no more son. Brian died just to get out of that situation. I have serious doubts about mum. She is definitely Mason's mum. Nutty as a fruitcake. The documentary gives us insight as to her disturbing behavior, the way she coddles Mason, almost blaming her daughter for her own death. Uh, Another commenter writes, No one should judge these parents to me. This would be living hell on earth. Mason is a psychopath and needs to come clean with his parents. Everyone else knows what happened, but I believe they have to think it was an accident or they would crumble. Much respect for his father. He is more honest with himself. He knows deep down what his son is. You can tell. And another commenter who actually used his name, Brian Evans, wrote, I noticed the mother describing that when he stole cars that, if possible, he would return it back to where it was. It's as if she's trying to downplay his mischievous behavior. There was a lot of similarities between mother and Mason in regards to emotion or lack thereof. The father and daughter seem to be the most alike and most punished through this scenario. There is clearly more to this story than the creators were able to convey in an hour and 34 minutes time frame. And after watching the documentary, I, I personally, my feelings at that time were just that there, I think there's places that the human brain just cannot go and losing your child to a murder. And then knowing that your other child did it just seems like it would be one of those places. Um, I don't think that the parents covered anything up. They did cooperate with the police. I think they just chose not to throw their remaining child away. And I would never want to make a choice like that. So um, I don't really feel like I could judge them for their choices at that time. But of course, as Brian Evans says, there is clearly more to the story. So I did some digging. The Ontario Superior Court actually noted in their legal appeal uh, in their legal appeal decision, some things that that didn't make it into the documentary about Mason's early life and some of his actions that actually were leading up to the murder of his sister. Apparently, he had actually started having what they classified as antisocial behavior at a really early age. Uh, family members found him to be controlling, manipulative, and very difficult to manage. He had an assessment done when he was 12, like one of those psychoeducational assessments. Um, And then they described his behavior as oppositional, noting that he would often, what they say, triangle his parents against each other to achieve his desired gain or to avoid punishment for his misbehavior. He acted out a lot, um, urinating on his bedroom floor, Uh, hiding from his parents on the roof of the house, things like that. He displayed aggression towards his parents. Um, His parents in that assessment described him as being completely out of control during that time. And then, of course, those behaviors were also seen in the school system. He then later turned to some criminal behavior. He stole his parents' car um, and was placed in a group home, actually, between the ages of 10 and 12. Between 1990 and 2001, at the time of his sister's murder, he actually had 31 convictions under his belt by that time. So what the documentary didn't mention about Brian and Leslie's relationship with Mason was that they were very concerned, actually, about his behavior. And they had asked 
for help a number of times. They had written letters to officials looking for interventions. They had written letters to Mason, begging him to change his behavior. And despite everything that they were doing, they were just unable to to, ch- to make any changes in him. And Mason actually like disregarded any assistance that they, he was being offered through different services. In May of 1994, he was released from a... He was in a detention facility at that time, but he was released early, two weeks early, because of what they called exemplary exemplary conduct. But within a week of getting out, he went right back to his criminal behavior. He stole a car. He was um, convicted then later of stealing a car, driving dangerously and failing to stop for the police during a high speed chase. Um, And in that case, there was actually extensive damage done both to the vehicle that he had stolen and to the police vehicles. Two police officers were hurt in that incident. And after he got like boxed in by the police vehicles, He continued to ram into these police vehicles shouting, shoot me, kill me, you know who I am. At that point, Leslie and Brian had actually written a letter to the judge that was going to be ruling on the sentencing hearing, like saying that they were frustrated over the lack of support that was available to Mason and that there was a potential for future violence, saying our biggest fear is that someday Mason will hurt himself or someone else and then it'll be too late. Perhaps then someone will say we should have listened. Um, Now the probation officer that was assigned to him, now this was a full three years before the murder, said probation cannot serve any useful purpose for this young man. He will not avail himself of treatment opportunities and continuously reoffends, making treatment in the community virtually impossible. Mason Jenkins has demonstrated a pattern of irresponsible behavior and a pattern of criminal offenses that, to date, have only led to minor injury and damage to vehicles. However, if he continues in the same type of offenses, someone could be seriously hurt in the future. On December 18th of 1997, which was 25 days before the murder of his sister. He was released from custody. And at that, so the charges on that one that he was in prison for just before the murder was two counts of possession, a one count of driving while prohibited, and one count of breach of recognizance. It was his, actually his father, Brian, that had signed as surety for him on that one. And then right away after his release, he breached a couple of his bail terms, including um, the curfew that was on him and that he had to abstain from consumption of alcohol. He then continued to carry on with his regular behavior. He stole some checks, um, some of his parents' checks and his mother's bank card. And what he did is that he withdrew money from the bank account um, that was a, it was a joint account bet- between Brian and Leslie. So he withdrew money from that. He opened his own bank account then and transferred them and put money into that account from the parents. He had also broken into the farmhouse where he, it, that's where he stole the gun that was used to kill his sister. And the day before the murder, 
Leslie had discovered that her bank card was missing. And when she was searching Mason's room, because she obviously suspected that he had stolen it, she found also a, a bunch of these checks that were from the joint account. And when he confronted, when she confronted him, he admitted that he had stole the money from the joint account and that he had transferred the funds to this new account that he had opened. So what he agreed to do was that he was going to close the new account um, and his father actually took him to the bank to do it. And then his mom gave him back the bank card so that he could return the stolen funds, like leaving it up to him to then put the money back into the account. And of course, instead of returning the money, he took another $300 from the account. And he admitted that he had manipulated that situation so that he could get that bank card back. Um, he said he sort of spun a story to see if it would work to get that bank card back in my possession. After the, the murder, he had also fled, uh, of course, the scene and it broke, broke into his cousin's house on their farm and that's where he stole the horse that he was on um, and rode away on it and then after that he then stole a Ford Bronco and then was arrested the following morning so that's how he was actually brought in for questioning they didn't actually find him riding around on the horse then the other thing that I found out from the court documents is that during the time that he was incarcerated he's been incarcerated during this life sentence at five different institutions and he's been on one hand he completed high school diploma in 2008 um, and he has done some tutoring so he's had some positive experience in there but on the other hand he has also had some offenses he was convicted of possession of marijuana for the purpose of purposes of trafficking actually he confessed to selling contraband to the inmates in 2011 he was found to have a facebook page which he described where he described himself as office manager for correction services canada and then in 2000 january of 2012 he had he was charged with possession of a whole bunch of different items in his cell, uh, all of which, of course, are unauthorized for him to have, including some old health care cards, identification cards, tattoo and drawing stencils, um, and a bunch of screws. <laughs> uh, and then in November of 2012, he was at the Bath Institution. He was alleged to have threatened an administrative assistant security intelligence officer um, and was also alleged to be, quote, muscling other residents of his unit. Dr. Stephen Hucker, who's a forensic psychiatrist, in 2011, he did um, a report on Mason and said, quote, his incarceration has been marked by a number of disciplinary problems, complaints about staff and institutional regulations and procedures. Comments in the materials reviewed indicate that in addition to providing disparate accounts of his index offense, he has also tended to change his version of events with respect to other matters that have occurred during his incarceration. He has also alleged to attempt to manipulate situations to his advantage. There have been periods of segregation, most recently last month. However, he was released into general population while investigation continued. 
His alleged involvement in subculture activities has been a recurring theme in his records. Indeed, his 2009 conviction for drug possession for the purpose of trafficking was in connection with such involvement. However, his file suggests that there is no evidence of his being involved in this type of activity at the present time. Then, of course, he was also diagnosed with attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and he had attempted suicide in 1997. So I don't know about you, but that does kind of change my feelings a little bit about mom and dad's support of their son. Um, I still think it's an impossible choice, but it, it could be that their support is a little bit born of guilt for kind of enabling Mason's behavior as a child by sort of mitigating, downplaying it and kind of having that, oh, my poor boy kind of mentality about it. Um, But as a parent of adults myself, I think that, you know, you're all just doing the best that we can. And I think it's just a sad and tragic story. And I think Brian and Leslie have definitely served a life sentence with Mason for something that they didn't do. And I think that their logical brains knew that he killed her um, and believed that they were or had been at one point targets themselves, but that it's that animal brain, the, the one that I always refer to as my mama bear brain, I think just can't go there. There's a fictional book that you might like if you like this story. It's called We Need to Talk About Kevin. There's a movie about it, too, if you don't like to, you know, if you'd rather watch a movie than read it. It is fictional and it's not actually like this exactly like this story but there's some similar themes in it i enjoyed it anyway so it's it's very dark but it's very well written so that's called we need to talk about kevin if you're interested and that was the disturbing murder of jennifer jenkins by her brother mason now you can discuss amongst yourselves what you think what you think you'd do in a similar situation which of course i hope never happens to you rate review etc etc And thank you for listening. When you visit Arizona, time is measured in moments, not minutes. Like the moment your work stress disappears as you kayak through the canyons. Or the moment you discover the life-changing effects of prickly pear chocolate. But nothing beats the moment you see the Grand Canyon for the very first time. Visit a new state of mind. Learn more at hereyouareaz.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.